So if you would join me. Our Father, we pause to come before you, lifting up our voices in prayer to you, lifting up our needful souls to you. And we do so with the confidence, as we just sung, that your love will never let us go. And so we bring to your loving hands the concerns of our hearts, the needs of our people, the needs of our nation. Father, all that is happening in our world is no mystery to you. In fact, you're sovereignly ordaining all things. But sometimes it's hard for us to believe and to trust in that. So, Father, we ask that you would quicken our faith to trust in you in all circumstances. Father, for those who are physically sick, hurting, that are emotionally distressed, Father, would you be the healer, the comforter, the provision for each of those? Those that have suffered loss, Father, be their moment-by-moment companion. May your grace rest upon them. Father, many are financially struggling, hurting. May you provide for their needs graciously according to your riches in heaven. May you cause them to rejoice in what they do have. And may all of us, Father, give generously to those in need around us. May we find ways to be a blessing to others, to be an encouragement in this time of discouragement that surrounds us. Father, may we as citizens of this city and of this country and of this world be encouraging to those that are in leadership that we might be a help to them and a blessing that we might be prayerful people for them. Father, bless our leaders, and if we disagree with the decisions that are made and are disheartened by those decisions, Father, may you give us grace to know how to act and how to live in a way that honors you and points others around us to the hope that we have in Christ. May we not lose hope. Father, we pray for our church that in this dark land spiritually father that we would be a faithful light as we reflect the light of christ father we are vessels in your hand use us according to your purposes in this dark world to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of those that we know and love and father now as we focus our attention on your word as we read it and as it is taught to us May your Holy Spirit guide us into all understanding and quicken our hearts and our feet and our hands to obedience to your word. Guide us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Our reading today is out of Lamentations, chapter 3. You'll turn with me there. Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 1 through 
I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shouts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my path crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my help, hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down with me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it is come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning, Sun Valley Church. It's good to see you today. So thankful to be with you on this beautifully snowy day. Hope you enjoyed that snow. <clears throat> We're going to be in Psalm 119 again this morning. If you have your Bible, you'll need to be there and uh, be at verse 149. We've been thinking about uh, prayer because the stanza that we're in, the quote stanza, um, is about prayer, earnest prayer really, about a desire to deepen your affection for Christ, to be more affectionate for Him. Jesus taught on prayer, as you know, many times. He illustrated prayer in his life regularly. Jesus taught that the life of prayer is the life of spiritual vitality. So if you want a spiritually vital life, then prayer is going to have to be a part of that. Jesus taught that healthy relationships with God and man is a result of prayer. And so if you want healthy relationships with God and man, prayer will have to be a part of that. Jesus taught that prayer is the key to successful evangelism. If you want to see your neighbors come to Christ, your children come to Christ, your friends come to Christ, then prayer must be an important part of that. He talked about prayer being the key to having our needs met, prayer being the key to avoiding sin and temptation. Jesus taught that we must pray. Jesus taught that we must pray often, pray earnestly. And of course, the Gospels record the prayer life of Jesus. He was constantly in prayer, wasn't he? Yes. Then we come to Romans chapter 8, and in verse 29, the Apostle Paul tells us that the destiny of every true believer is to become like Jesus. And so part of becoming like Jesus, isn't it to become better at prayer? I think so. That's an easy connection. The longer we walk with Christ, the more and more committed to prayer we will be. The more you become like Jesus, the more you will pray like Jesus. The quote stanza here in verse, or chapter 119 of Psalms begins in verse 145 and ends in verse 152 is about developing this intimacy with God through prayer, earnest prayer. And it's a challenging but wonderful invitation to communion with God. I hope you've been encouraged in your pursuit of God through our study of this particular stanza. But as we have studied, I don't know if this question's come to your mind or not, but it has to mind. Uh, on what basis do we think God listens to our prayers? Why would God listen to you or me? How do we know that we are welcome in the presence of God when we come with our prayers? How do we know that he wants us there? Are we sure he just isn't putting up with us out of some kind of obligation? So when you come, on what basis do you come? into the presence of the God Almighty. Today I want to help you understand that we have more than just an invitation from God to pray. We have more than just an invitation to be in His presence. There is so much more in play 
I want you to understand the important foundations for prayer so that you will be more confident in your prayers and drawn into a personal, affectionate presence with God. The God who loves you, who we sang about this morning. The God who loves us with an unshakable love. That's what I want. I want you to be encouraged in your prayer life as you leave this morning and actually anxious to get to prayer, which isn't common for most of us. So listen to this verse, Psalm 119, 149. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, according to your justice, give me life. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. It's obvious, as we've been studying this particular psalm, that he desires intimacy with God. Almost every verse is a, is a plea for intimacy with God. He, he wants a vibrant spiritual life. I mean, is there anything worse for a Christian than a dead spiritual life? Is there anything more we want to avoid than a dead relationship with God? We want vibrancy, don't we? We, we don't want to just put up with or maintain. We, we want some reality, vibrancy, depth, affection with God. And, and the Bible marks the path for that. This chapter marks a path to that vibrancy. This verse specifically gives us a clear path to vibrancy, to intimacy, to affection with God in prayer. This verse is what we need today. This verse is what I need today. So let's look at this verse closely, and there's two parts to it, as you can see. Almost in every verse in Psalm 119, there are two parts. It's convenient for us simple-minded people. Part A, part B, throughout the entire psalm. Well, let's look at the first part, and I've titled it The Foundation of Prayerful Communion. What is the foundation for prayerful communion? What is it that, that makes you sure you're welcome in the presence of God, that he wants you there? <clears throat> Do you know what that is? The verse tells us. You can see it there. Um, what gives us the right to enter into the presence of God Almighty, the sovereign God of the universe? Well, verse 149 gives us two pillars in the first half of the verse on which our acceptance with God stands. Two pillars. And the first is the steadfast love of God. The first pillar on which our acceptance into the presence of God, our, our being welcome into his presence stands, is the steadfast love of God. The psalmist reminds us of God and his steadfast love right here in the beginning of the verse. According to your steadfast love, Lord, hear my prayers. So what evidence do we have of this steadfast love of God towards us? If you had your neighbor come to you and say, could you prove to me that God actually loves us, that God loves you, that he loves me, where would you take him? Where would you take your neighbor? Or your child, for that matter, if they ask the same question? Well, here's some ideas for you. First is this. The character of God. How do we know God loves us? How do we know we're welcome into his presence? Because the character of God. This is the sure basis of his love. God is a God of love. The Bible is called God's love letter for a reason. 
It's full of confirmation of his love towards us. He is a God of love. God always is guided by his loving character. He never does anything unloving. Why? Because God is love. Listen to some verses <clears throat> that are familiar to you. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Psalm 36, verse 7 and 10, how precious is your steadfast love, O Lord God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. His character tells us that he's loving. His character also tells us that he's generous. This is another reason why you're welcome into his presence. He's generous. Listen to this verse from Romans 8.32. <clears throat> he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, all these things that we want and ask for and need, are so much less than what he's already given, right? His own son. If he's given his son, these other things are minor in comparison. He's generous. He desires your presence. He desires to meet your need. The next character trait I want to point out to you is his faithfulness. His love, his generosity, here his faithfulness. Hebrews 10, 22 through 23. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near into his presence. Draw near in prayer. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is loving, he's generous, he's faithful. We are welcome into his presence because of that first pillar. And what a pillar. The second pillar of our prayer life is also seen in verse 149, God's justice. You see it. According to your justice, give me life. We don't often pair God's steadfast love with justice, do we? That seems out of place almost. It seems that those two things are even on the opposite end of the spectrum. God's love and God's justice. We gravitate towards his love. We shy away from his justice. But here in verse 149, we see that the psalmist uses them almost simultaneously or um, synonymously. Love, justice, they're interchangeable in the, in the psalmist's mind. That should teach us something it may, maybe we need to think more clearly about the justice of God as a basis for our communion with him. Does that sound strange to you? That the justice of God is a basis for our communion with God? Let me explain that. When we hear the justice of God, we normally think of his judgment on sin, don't we? We would say that God is just in condemning sin and the sinner. We would agree with the many statements in the Bible that address the perfect justice of God towards sin, towards sinners. He is just. He's the standard of right. He can do no wrong. He is not unjust in any way. 
Saying God is just means that he demands holiness. He demands righteousness in everyone. He must judge and punish sin. This causes us concern if we think about our sin, doesn't it? The justice of God, which is why we shy away from it. We, we are guilty, and there's no question. And so if God is just, which he is, he must punish sin. He must restrict our access if he is just. But here we sit this morning, alive and forgiven. Is God just? Can he just sweep it under the rug and say, it's okay? He cannot. Many have said that we should be thankful that we don't get what we deserve. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you think that. There is much truth in that statement. We should be thankful that we don't get what we deserve with God. But that makes it sound like we have skirted God's justice somehow, doesn't it? Oh, I should have gotten that, but I didn't. Oh, it's kind of how we talk about God's justice. But it's more biblically accurate to say that because of the work of Christ for us, we are getting exactly what we deserve. Forgiveness, restoration, regeneration, hope, love, etc. How can we sit here and say we deserve that? How can this be? The gospel explains it. Jesus took all of our punishment on himself. He was condemned instead of us. He died in our place. All of God's wrath was, was spent on Jesus. So now, anyone who puts their trust or their faith in Jesus Christ is declared not guilty. Have you thought through the gospel, friend? Is this not the best news you've ever heard? God's wrath was fully spent on Jesus. There's not an ounce left to spend on those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. But there remains God's demand of righteousness. All right? His justice demands punishment that was taken out on Christ. But there remains God's demand for righteousness in you and in me. God must punish sin because he's just, and he did so in Christ. But there remains this outstanding debt of righteousness and perfection as he is. Now what? Are you able to produce that? No? No one's willing to say, I can produce my own righteousness? I can fulfill God's demand to be right and perfect as Jesus demands? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. How are you going to pull that off? Jesus' death doesn't provide that. What does? Jesus' life provides that. His death pays your penalty. His life provides the righteousness required. In regeneration, when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart, part of that process includes the imputation or the giving of the righteousness of Jesus to your account. 
That's part of the arrangement. God transfers our guilt to Jesus, transfers Jesus' righteousness to us. Our sin is paid for, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. Listen, you will never hear better news than that, ever, now or in eternity. That is something to jump up and down about. What an amazing, solid foundation, pillar for the entrance into the presence of God, isn't it? We now can enter into the presence of God without fear and trembling, without wondering whether or not we're welcome. Why? Because of these two pillars, the steadfast love and justice of God. In case you're not convinced by my weak preaching, listen to the inspired word of God. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's you and me. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for you and me. (laughs) The foundation of prayerful communion is the steadfast love and justice of God. Secondly, the content of prayerful communion. We've seen the foundation. How about the content? This almost has been so helpful for me personally, developing an interest in more substantial prayer. But he not only gives us the basis of our confidence in praying, these two pillars that I mentioned, but he also gives us key elements that we ought to include in our own prayer life. Like this, the plea to be heard. The plea to be heard. You see that? Verse 49, hear my voice. Please hear me. This whole stanza has been that. A plea to be heard. It runs throughout the entire psalm. In fact, this whole psalm is a prayer, really, and much of this prayer is an ongoing plea to be heard by God. But let me say something important to you, New Testament saints. If you're in Christ, your prayers are guaranteed to be heard. Guaranteed. Jesus is currently in heaven praying for you, as I just read from Romans 8. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, actively drawing us into the presence of God, participating personally in praying for and with us in the presence of the triune God. The only thing that causes God to turn a deaf ear to someone who is in Christ is unconfessed sin. And so if you are staying current with God, up to date in your confession of sin, he hears all your prayers, as superficial or as deep as they may be. He hears them. He cares. 
So the first plea here is the plea to be heard. Second is the plea for spiritual vitality. What's he praying for? He says, give me life. Do you see that at the end of the verse? Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice. Give me life. Physical life in view, is that what he's praying for? Potentially, possibly. I mean, this guy is getting chased around by his enemies physically a lot. We've already read that, studied that in this chapter. People want to kill him. And so he may be pleading for his life physically. But I think spiritual life is the primary emphasis here in this verse. He's asking for spiritual vitality, for loving communion, for joyful fellowship with God. And there's two two ways to look at this request for life. One is regeneration, spiritual life, spiritual birth. He's pleading for that, potentially. We've learned in the past few weeks that God doesn't hear the prayers of those who aren't saved. So this makes sense, right? If you don't know Christ, if you're not in Christ, God doesn't hear your prayers. He isn't interested in communication with those who rejected his only offer of forgiveness found in his son, Jesus Christ. The way into the house is through the front door, and the front door to fellowship with God is through Jesus Christ. There's no other entrance. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus referred to himself as the door, the gate, the way, etc. That's the only way you can have fellowship, communion, meaningful prayer with God is through Christ. So do you want fellowship with, friendship with God? Then you must humbly come to him by faith. Faith in the work of Jesus that he accomplished in his life and death. You must embrace Jesus as God and Lord of your life. Then and only then will God hear your prayers. If you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, if you've bowed the knee to Christ, you will be able actually to have fellowship and friendship with God, but in no other way than Christ. This, of course, is something that must be preached regularly. But this is not the focus of the psalmist's prayer here in verse 149. He's already right with God. He has already come to God by faith. The focus of this prayer is restoration, spiritual vitality. Give me life is what is in view. So this is the second option here. Besides regeneration, it's restoration. And I think this is the focus. Restoration. Revive me. Increase my affection for Christ. Conform me to his image. Please, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Make me be what I should be, is this prayer. From time to time, because of our nature, our hearts become burdened with the challenges of life, doesn't it? We lose sight of God, we confuse our priorities, we drift from Christ, we experience apathy, we sense distance between us and our God. But the longer this goes on, the more the, more the heart of a truly regenerated person becomes uncomfortable and begins to long for life, for renewal, for restoration. We want intimacy, we're designed to have intimacy with God and affection between him and us, communion with him, if you know Christ. It is what's built into your DNA now that you believe. Intimacy with God, your creator. 
And this is what the psalmist is asking for. He's asking God to restore that spiritual vitality he once knew. He once knew. Evidently, he's sensed some drifting in his life. And I think we can all relate to this. We, we, there are times in each of our lives where the world, the flesh, or the devil have beaten us down and we've succumbed to the weight or the fatigue of the daily battle. Throughout the Christian life, we experience the tide of spiritual vitality rising and falling. And this verse reminds us that we need to pray and plead with God to restore us to the joy of his salvation. This is what the beloved prayed for in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 4. Draw me after you, the beloved prayed. So when you sense spiritual decline, fatigue, or apathy, this is the prayer that should be on your lips. Have or hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. That's an earnest prayer. You remember Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. We need God to intervene. We need God to have his way. We cannot get out of the mire ourselves. That's why we pray to the all-powerful God of the universe. Lord, do this for me, please. I can't remain in the rut, the mire, for the remainder of my Christian life. No way. I want vitality. Of course, this prayer is not by mistake in this stanza, which is about earnest praying. With my whole heart I cry, I call to you, save me, hear my voice. This author wants vitality. This preacher wants vitality. This congregation wants vitality. Right? Amen. This type of praying reminds me of the night that Jacob spent on the shores of the Jabbok River. You remember that in Genesis 32? What was the reason that Jacob would not let go, not stop the wrestling match with God? He says, I'm not going to stop until you bless me. That's what this prayer is. I'm not going to let you go, God, until you fulfill my desire, my heart's desire for a vital Christian relationship with you, for a vital, intimate, authentic, affectionate love with my Creator. But we must ask, <clears throat> why would Jesus be interested in restoring and renewing rebellious sinners like us? What is in, what's in it for him? I mean, why not just save us and wait you know, a few years and we'll get to heaven? Doesn't Jesus tire of our wavering, constant asking? Here's where I want you to hear me this morning if you haven't yet. Please pay attention. Um, I want to begin to explain this. That is, why would Jesus be interested in renewing and restoring us? Let me explain this by quoting from a book that a few of us men uh, read through a year or two ago called The Heart of Christ by Thomas Goodwin. Goodwin answered this question, why would Jesus be interested in regenerating, restoring, renewing us as sinners, <clears throat> with this answer. It's a little bit uh, obscure, so you've got to follow me closely. 
Christ's own joy, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. You see that? <laughs> Christ's joy, his comfort, his happiness, his glory is increased when he comes to us and meets us. <laughs> when we come to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and restoration, he does not get frustrated or impatient with us for our repeated requests for help. He is like the jungle doctor who spends years trying to get the natives to trust his skill and medicine. And when they finally start coming to him for help, he's overjoyed, not frustrated, not impatient. He's happy. This is why he came. And this is why God came to earth for this very purpose of restoring people like you and me. There is no sin or number of times that we come to God for healing and renewal that would cause him to get frustrated and turned away from us. This is why Jesus became man. This is why he endured all that he did. This is why he died. You can't frustrate him. You can't make him tired of your requests. When we come to Jesus for restoration, we are actually affirming his sacrificial work. We are actually restating our belief in his loving character. It might be like this, I'm coming to you once again, Savior, because you are loving and kind and full of mercy. I know you'll receive me. We come to him for grace and mercy because that is who he is. Our coming affirms his loving character. One of his deepest desires is that we share in his joy. He actually wants us to be happy Christians. He says this in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy is full to the brim. He wants us to be restored, renewed, strengthened, and happy. He doesn't tire of making that happen. Here's how Thomas Goodwin described it in the same book, The Heart of Christ. <clears throat> the glory and happiness of Christ are enlarged and increased still as his members come to have the purchase of his death more and more laid forth upon them. The more and more Jesus lays on the purpose of his death on you, the more full he is. So that when their sins are pardoned, their hearts more sanctified, their spirits comforted, then comes he, that is Jesus, to see the fruit of his labor. The reason he came. And is, Jesus is comforted thereby, for he is the more glorified by it. Yea, he is much more pleased and rejoiced in this than themselves can be. He's happier than you are when, he, when we come, is what Goodwin is saying. And this keeps up his heart, his care and love unto his children here below to water and refresh them every moment. You cannot make Jesus fatigued. 
What Goodwin is saying is the more that we come to Christ for mercy and help with our discouragement, sin, and difficulties, the more Christ is glorified and happy. We are actually doing exactly what he wants us to do. It brings him joy. When we come for help, we're not draining him. We're not hurting his feelings. We're not disturbing him. We're actually filling his human heart with more joy. And herein lies the answer to an important question some of you are probably asking. How can we bring more joy to the infinite, perfect God who is as happy as he can possibly be right now? How can our coming make him happier? How is this possible if he never changes? (laughs) Here's an important truth. We're coming to Jesus. And he is fully human. Fully God, fully human. Isn't that what we believe? That's what the Bible teaches. We're coming to the one who is like us. He has a human heart that's filled with more and more joy when we come to him for help. We come to the one whose character is love, mercy, and grace, and he wants us overflowing with joy because it makes him more happy. What saddens our Savior's heart is when we remain in the shadows, lurking around in fear, fearing that he won't receive us, or fearing that he'll be disgusted with us or be disappointed with us. I just, uh, I've come before with the same sin. I got, that saddens his heart. Because the reason he came was to restore. The reason he's in heaven interceding for you is to restore. The reason he's given your, his Holy Spirit into your heart is to restore and renew. This is why he came. Friends, it's not just our joy that's at stake here. Jesus' joy increases when we come. He loves to forgive. He loves to pardon. He loves to renew. He loves to restore. Our joy is directly connected to his. Listen to Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What joy was set before him? This, verse 149, renewing, restoring, forgiving his people makes him happy. That joy was set before him. That's why he endured the cross. To experience that level of intense joy. Friends, when we come to Jesus for help, we're tapping into his deepest longing, into what brings him the most joy, fulfilling the purpose for which he came. More than anything, he wants to strengthen you, forgive you, renew you. There is zero reluctance in his heart to do all of this for us. It's exactly what makes him tick. You remember how wrong the prodigal son was about his father's response or reaction would be if he were to return? He was afraid that his father would reject him, would be frustrated with him, would demean him. 
The son played it over and over and over again in his mind. Remember, that's recorded. And he was convinced that he would have to really grovel in his father's presence just to have any chance of being allowed to live on the property, let alone as a son. But he was completely wrong, wasn't he? The father's response or reaction to the son's confession and contrition was overjoyed. Was, was, he wanted to throw the biggest party he'd ever thrown. And Jesus told that story so that we would hear it. You don't have to stay in the shadows and grovel when you come. Come with the full assurance of faith knowing that that's why Jesus died. And we fulfill the purpose for which he came and fulfill the longing of his heart when we come for renewal. And by the way, you need renewal every day. If you're sitting here thinking, well, the next time I need renewal, I'll come. You need renewal. So do you want to be restored, renewed, forgiven? Do you want to have that intimate affection for Christ as he does for you? then you must go to the only one who can do that for you and ask him earnestly to do what he wants to do, what he gets joy from doing. We must pray, verse 149, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Jesus said in John 10, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Isaiah 30, 18. And this is in the Old Testament. Therefore, the Lord, that's Yahweh, waits to be gracious to you. He can't wait to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. God is exalted when he shows mercy towards you. For the Lord is a God of justice. There it is again, that word. Blessed are those who wait on him. Come, friends be renewed. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful reminder we have here buried in the middle of an ancient text of your current love and affection for us. I am so thankful and overjoyed to read and study these things and speak them here this morning to your dear people at Sun Valley. I pray that if there be anyone who, who is here this morning who remains in the shadows for fear of, of, of a negative response from you, I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would convince them now of your desire to have them come. I pray that you'll keep the enemy away from persuading us that we're unworthy or that, God, you may not want to hear us. Lord, by your Spirit's power and instruction, I pray that everyone in this room would be encouraged to pray, to enter in um, with confidence and, and joy, um, experiencing affection from our Creator being built up and strengthened and renewed in your presence.
God bless us with these things because of Christ. Amen.